The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. It's Thursday, September 4th, 2014. From Slate, it's the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So a lot of news today. Some sad, like the passing of Joan Rivers, comedy icon, age 81. And then there was the fact that the former governor of Virginia was found guilty on 11 of the counts of corruption he faced. His his wife, too, Bob McDonald's wife. And since they used the, our marriage was so broken, we couldn't be corrupt defense. I guess you could say it's a, a double loss for them because they were publicly embarrassed. And now probably going to jail. Are those the news stories that caught my attention? Nope. It was this one. Wall Street Journal. Here's the headline. Paris backs off sending warship to Moscow. Or Moscow. Moscow. Paris. Wait a minute. You know, we always make fun of the French, right? I guess because there was that Simpsons marathon and the cheese-eating surrender monkey thing. And, well, you know, the history of the French military. But let's, let's look at some of the facts, I'm thinking, as I read this article, or at least this headline, that indicates that, you know, okay, Paris didn't actually, you know, confront Putin and send a warship to Moscow, but it shows a little gumption. And I said, yeah, maybe I need to cut the, the French more of a break. I mean, they intervened in Mali. They did a really great job there, perhaps forestalled a humanitarian crisis, doing the same thing in the uh, Central African Republic. They have a little bit of a new tactic. They go into Africa when they need to the military does, and it actually saves lives. And, you know, remember the French Foreign Legion rejected Bo Bergdahl? Turns out to maybe have been the smart choice. If you look what happened with Bergdahl when the U.S. military took him. But then I read the second sentence of this article, and it turns out that what Paris was backing off was not sending the warship to wage war on Moscow, but selling it to Moscow. Wow, that's prudent. Please do not give Vladimir Putin a warship. Which got me to thinking a little bit about the French Navy. I mean, what do we know about the French Navy? The shirts, they all wear those shirts with the horizontal stripes, so those are cool. Well, it turns out you can fit the French Navy into just about the biggest ship in the U.S. Navy if you don't include the aircraft carrier Charles de Gaulle. The French Navy consists of 84 vessels. There are 10 submarines. The aircraft carrier, Charles de Gaulle, an amphibious assault ship, an amphibious transport dock. And I was looking at the names of some of these ships. So, so delightfully French. Like you have the Triomphant class. These are uh, some ballistic submarines, including the S-616 Triomphant. I don't know. I just like pretend to be a French speaker. And the Temeraire. I don't know what T-E-M-E-R-A-I-R-E, maybe Timeraire, just got translated in Google Translate as nothing except maybe reckless or rash. So they have a submarine called the Reckless. They have a submarine called the Vigilant. They have a submarine called the Terrible. doesn't mean terrible the way we mean terrible. But this specific kind of ship that they were going to ship to Moscow, uh, pun intended, is the Mistral. What's the Mistral? They have another ship called the, uh, the Sirocco. Those are both kinds of winds that affects the south of France. I don't know if that will put a scare into you. Maybe the Faudre class of amphibious transport dock. Faudre is, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, that's the word for lightning. So they have some good names, some really weird names, but what the French Navy does really well, they have the best iconography ever. They have a great symbol, the Marine Nationale. It is, if, if looked at one way, 
almost a giant thumbtack piercing a blue and red splotch of color. But of course, the thumbtack is coming at you and it scans as a ship. It's evocative. It connotes movement, power, and grace. It's stylish. It's not blunt. It's not trying too hard. It's deeply suggestive. So even though the French Navy has only 84 ships, and even though they didn't get to ship one to Moscow, I have to say, excellent, excellent logo, French Navy. On the show today, a brilliant cellist who has embraced the devil's music. Yes, she's turned to the rock and roll. And in the spiel, I have yet to meet the person who's come up to me and said, actually, there is no finish to that sentence fragment, but there's so much you could do with that phrase about not having met the person. But first, all the trouble in the world and how to quantify it. The world is a complex, dangerous, and unpredictable place. Yes, though actually, let's focus a second on that last part. Unpredictable. It seems like an absolute value, like pregnant, but it's not. There are degrees of unpredictability. So just how unpredictable is the world? How unstable are some regimes? How likely to implode are others? This is the work of researchers, chief among them, Jay Ulfelder. Jay used to head the U.S. government-funded Political Instability Task Force. Now, he's a free agent thinker, and he has a blog called Dart Throwing Chimp. Hello, Jay. Hi, Mike. Nice to meet you. So let's start with this. Describe your statistical methods and how they're superior to what has always been done in foreign policy, which is, you know, at the highest reaches, you're in the State Department, you get a learned hand on a country or you get some area experts, someone saying, hey, I've been to Zimbabwe three times this year, or someone else saying, I speak Russian, Ukrainian and follow all the media and have written two histories. I know what I'm talking about, but you have statistics and you have numbers. So how do your methods differ? Most of what we're doing You know, people hear that and they think, okay, this is big data. You know, you're tracking what people are doing with cell phones and what they're talking about on Twitter. At this point, the state of the art in sort of political risk assessment and, and, you know, looking for where um, wars and coups and regime changes and those kinds of things are going to happen is still in the world of relatively small data. So you're mostly looking at numbers representing features of, of, countries around the world in any given year and saying, okay, given what I knew about what this country looked like last year, you know, what's likely to happen next year? Okay, so give me a number that might be highly correlative to a coup or political instability, and maybe one that we think would be, but it turns out not to be a great predictor of political instability. Yeah, well, one, like if you had to pick one number to just do the most basic risk assessment for virtually all forms of political instability. One of the ones that works best is a country's infant mortality rate, um, and specifically like how its infant mortality rate compares to the global average in any particular year. So countries that are, you know, have relatively high rates are unusually susceptible to instability and and uh, and vice versa. So that's one that kind of summarizes a bunch of things about a, not just a country's wealth and economy, but also like how that wealth is being distributed um, you know, how it's being spent, is it being invested in things that help take care of people and that sort of thing. Right. Now, of course, I think that uh, infant mortality is also a great lagging indicator, right? After yes, a absolutely. War. But yeah. is it because that you could give me a, a per capita income number, but that not, might not get to everyone. I mean, when it redounds to a spike in infant mortality, what's that telling me is that the most basic fundamental services, the minimal services aren't even being delivered, and that's going to get people really upset? 
Yeah, well, it may be that it gets people upset. It may be that it's indicative of a government that doesn't do its job very well. And and not only does that get people upset, but it also means that government's not very good at keeping the peace or, you know, maintaining security. So they're more vulnerable to, you know, to armed challenges yeah. uh, and or coup, you know, coup attempts and that kind of thing. I'm going to ask that we end this interview. Give me any any hint of optimism. And then I think the one you're more ready to do, give me a little hint of international pessimism. Yeah, optimism. Uh, well, optimism, uh, optimism. I yeah, know the word. That's right. Familiar no, I concept. still. I'm actually a, a long-term optimist for sure, and I and I and I, I I wind up I think getting on the wrong side of a, a fair number of people for this. But I, you know, I, if I step back from the, you know, within a particular case where things look terrible, up to the global data where things look like they're trending bad, and back out to this sort of long-term historical perspective, you can start to see a number of significant positive trends that are still holding in spite of the uh, increase in, in global disorder. So things like the downward trend in uh, in poverty rates around the world. Right. Uh, and downward trend in, in infant mortality, increases in life expectancy. And then one that's uh, been a particular research interest of mine for a long time. So an increase in the number of countries around the world that have democratic governments. At this point, four of the five largest countries in the world have what we would consider reasonably democratic governments. And that's almost two billion people in those four countries, China being the obvious exception. So that's the thing that keeps me long-term optimistic, that if we can get out of the sort of current cycle of disorder and see those trends continue or start increasing again, uh, that would be great. Jay Olfelder is actually working with the U.S. Holocaust Museum Center for the Prevention of Genocide on an early warning system to alert us all about the possibilities of genocide. Throughout the world, he blogs at Dart Throwing Chimp. Thank you, Jay. Thanks very much. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store for a free trial. For 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST at checkout. Squarespace is simple and easy. It offers drag-and-drop content. It offers beautiful design. It has 24-7 support, except on Leap Day and also the day where you uh, do the time change, then it's either 23-7 or 25-7. But they're really, you know, they're really supportive, these people in New York, Dublin, and Portland. Plans start at $8 a month. Plans include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. You can start a free trial with no credit card. You start building your website today. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. Thank you, Squarespace, for supporting the GIST. Squarespace, a better web, starts with your website. This is Maya Beiser. She's playing Back in Black by ACDC. And she's here with me now through Magic. We're actually playing the song Under Us as we talk. Hello, Maya. Hey, how are you? So you are an accomplished cellist. You've played with orchestras. You have many solo works. 
and you said, you know what I need to do? I need to do what Malcolm and Angus Young were doing when they were selling out uh, clubs in Sydney in 1980. Why? What attracted you to the uh, the dirty music of rock and roll? <laughs> well, you know, that has been my dirty little secret, uh-huh. which is I've loved this music all my life. But, you know, I was a classical music geek. I grew up really learning how to play the cello, and there's no other way of learning how to play the cello other than to really dig in and learn all these big classical yeah. Western uh, music. But I've always embraced a lot of different kinds of music, and so this music is just, it's in my blood. It's what I've been listening to. And I was like, well, you know, I think it's time for me to kind of take it on and show what I can do with my instrument. And I wanted to show people that you can really do rock and roll on the cello. I'm playing everything. I'm playing all the tr- all the tracks as cello. I'm taking on the electric lead electric guitar, the vocals, the, the you know the harmony. It's everything. So the only addition is drum and bass. Yeah. On some of the tracks, actually, some of the tracks don't even have that. It was such a fun thing to do for me. Was the cello your first instrument? I actually started playing piano uh-huh. uh, when I was six, but it was my first love. Do most <laughs> do most cellists start with violin or another string instrument? Uh, not necessarily. Um, I, they wanted me to start to play the violin. I have perfect pitch. And Who's the they? The people. Uh, you know, I grew up in a kibbutz yeah. in Israel, and it's the best um, place for a kibbutz. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody. It so happened that it was like you know. If someone does something, everybody does it. So everybody started to play classical instruments when we were six. Yeah. And then they did um, realize that I have perfect pitch and that I had talent. So they were like, hey, you should play the violin. But I didn't like the violin. I, there was just, first of all, there were too many people already playing the violin, and I needed to do something nobody else did. That was part of the, you know, rebellious streak, which led me out of the kibbutz <laughs> uh, pretty early in my life. But um, so... You know, I was like, no, how about the cello? Because uh, no one played the cello. And I was a little girl, and I loved the fact that it was a big instrument. It just yeah. felt kind of like it would protect me from the world. But I also really loved the sound of it. The range of the cello is just so cool because because it has – it's the range of, the, of, you know, the human voice. But also you can go down and, and you can be a bass player and you can go way up. But it never sounds kind of like whiny like the violin. You know, it has this sort of like... <laughs> I won't tell the violin you said No, that. don't tell them. Yeah. <laughs> so what kind of kibbutz was it? I mean, some kibbutzes are more hippie and some are more hardcore. I have this conception... I'm probably totally wrong of everyone being more like, hey, we're a collective, do your own thing. But then I have this conception of the mother or father of a classical musician being like, you have to practice eight hours a day. So what was yours like? Uh, obviously, it was sort of a hippie thing. Mm-hmm. It was an Argentinian kibbutz. <laughs> My father came from Argentina. He was the only one who immigrated to Israel. And it was this big dream, you know, like to change the world and to create 
the utopian society. My mom was French, so I heard a lot of tango and some Edith Piaf and Jacques Brel. But my father was just the ultimate consumer of art and classical music and all these things. And so they never had to tell me to practice. Um, my father would just sit there and listen. And sometimes he would cry, you know, when I would play. And I knew that it gave him this incredible pleasure. And so it was just great. And he would listen no matter what I did, you know, even yeah. like in the beginning when it was just awful. Um, I mean, I don't think it was ever really awful. But, you know, I learned how to play pretty quickly. And I think, I think you know, it's one of those magical things that happens to, to, you know, to us in life where you just kind of meet the thing that is your thing. And it happened to me just in that early time in my life. And I just knew different world to be part of this very strict, full of rules, really, classical music world, which in my heart, I never really felt that I belonged there because I I never got like, why do they have to wear like, you know, ties and, mm-hmm. and stuff? Why do you have to wear this, you know, gown for like, I want to wear jeans or I want to wear leather pants or, you know, like I always had and I wanted to play things the way felt right to me. You're rebellious. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I went on a like kind of a different journey and I think it was a lucky thing that I got the fundamentals, you know, during that first, you know, early part of my life. So it then would be I hard can, to go the other way, wouldn't it? it right? Would be, it like would be, if you were raised on rock and roll and all of a sudden decided to be a great cellist at twenty two? It would be impossible. <laughs> That's right. It would be impossible. So then when did the rock and roll come in? When did you start listening to that? Well, you know, when I was sixteen, I was still in the kibbutz. So things were coming slow to the kibbutz, you know, because it yeah. was pretty isolated society. Well, was there radio? Was there like classic yeah, rock was, radio in Israel exa- that you could hear? Yeah, there yeah. was. There was. What and, were the popular bands? Well, you know, Pink Floyd yeah. was, you know, Beatles, of course, okay. you know, uh, those kind of things. But, I mean, I wasn't really listening to popular things necessarily because, you know, I was busy practicing the cello. But one day, a friend of mine just kind of, you know, played Janis Joplin for me. And it just shook me to the core, you know. And it was like, it just blew my mind that, that first of all, a female singer could be could be a rocker, you know, that she could do that kind of stuff. And I just really, you know, it was such a important moment in my life because I was like, okay, I want to play the cello the way she sings. And you got to imagine that whole thing, you know. Uh, I mean, me just following the dogma of classical music and and just going through my first transgression, you know, serious. <laughs> yes. And um I was you know, I remember just being filled with guilt. Well, you so, were an Israeli. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> that's right. <laughs> In the world of classical music, when 
different musicians in the orchestra, I'm sure it's easy to have a conversation like, oh, you like Bach? I like Bach. But ha- but does it is it a little hard to say, actually, I've been listening to uh, Guns N' Roses? Or is it musicians love all kinds of music, and even in the highfalutin world of classical music, they'll embrace something like ACDC readily? No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. Um, they wouldn't. And in fact, I remember, you know, I was kind of, well, I, was, I don't think I was ever really naive, but... You know, I went to Isaac Stern and I said, hey, you know, I've heard this. Because I, after Janis Joplin, I started to listen to all this other stuff. And actually, the, the, the bands that I was really into at the time were Genesis and, and um, you know, Brian Eno and, um, you know, all these guys, Velvet Underground. So you just chose, like, a bunch of bands that influenced every other band. Like exactly. Brian Eno, very influential. Right. And Genesis, I mean, production-wise. Right. right. Like, musically, I don't yeah. know if you could compare it to Stravinsky or someone in well, terms I of complexity. Yeah. I think yeah, actually it's pretty you can. complex stuff. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's brilliant stuff too, you know. So and I went to to Stern and I said, like, hey, listen to this stuff. And he's like, No, no, this is not real music. Oh, and so no. Yeah. So the thing is, but I think it's changing. Obviously it is because I mean, yeah, I think musicians today are much more open. There's still all these like unnecessary divisions, but you know, we have that everywhere in life, I guess. I just never subscribe to that. Like for me, music is either good or bad. It's not really about where it came from or, you know, so, but I think there are more and more people like me in the world these days. I mean, and definitely I think that the audience out there is embracing all these different genres. I think that classical music is having a lot of problems because of that. One of, I think, the most difficult things about classical music, like the environment, like when you have to sit there in the concert yeah. hall and you and can't pre, even like and cough. free unwrap and, your cough right, drops. Right, and yes, right yes, exactly. Yes. So I think that there's simple things like that that, you know, that we can do to kind of change the perception. So this is it. You have, you know, even it can even be the same program, but the 730 program will be your regular, let's pre-unwrap our cough drops right. and then 9 30 on the friday the late show clap along stand up exactly. maybe we'll play out to joy and you can sing along yeah and yeah. and you know have a beer before the show and during like, the show or during the show guys in and the if you want to get out beer here. right exactly dun, dun, dun. <laughs> beer here. <laughs> yeah all right let's go out on cellist's choice again what do you think we should hear i say let's listen to epitaph What do you want to tell me about Epitaph? Epitaph is, you know, is one of my favorite um, tracks on this album. It's it's a King Crimson tune, which I think just lends itself so beautifully to the cello. It's an anti-war, anti-violence track that they did back in the, you know, in the good old 70s. And I just, it's one of my favorite tracks on this album. Advisor, whose new album is called Uncovered, performs at La Poisson Rouge tonight, if you're hearing this on Thursday.
And now the spiel. Yesterday, in a special on the ESPN show Outside the Lines, the owner of the Washington NFL team, Dan Snyder, defended the team's nickname, the Redskins. Snyder sometimes goes to Native American reservations to receive thank yous from Native American leaders, sometimes to present checks to community groups and leaders. And I guess it was based on these visits that made him say this. I've met thousands of Native Americans. I'm yet to meet one out there on a reservation that comes up to me and says, I don't like the name of your football team. Oddly, I, who don't even have a connection to the Washington football team, I, in fact, who work for a media site that does not allow the use of the word Redskins in print, so I will refrain from saying it from here on, I have met Native Americans who say to me that I don't like the name of that football team. Huh. And, you know, polls show that 18% of Americans are against the nickname. So if you've met thousands, let's count the low end of that, 2,000 Native Americans, on average, 360 of them, if they're even not any more anti that nickname than the rest of us, 360 of them are not going to like the name of that football team. Maybe Snyder hasn't met those 360. Maybe those 360 don't say it to Snyder. Or maybe there's something going on here with the no one has ever said to me gambit. Also known as the I've yet to meet the person who. Sometimes the person that you've yet to meet clearly doesn't exist, right? And the phrase is a bank shot way of saying there is no one who holds this opinion. Or, of course, this thing I'm saying is universally true. Like Barbara Boxer once said, no one has ever come up to me and said, Barbara, there's too much clean water. I bet that's accurate. I bet no one has ever said that to Barbara Boxer. I mean, when would you say that to Barbara Boxer? Let's say you're watching the Senate cover band and they're doing a version of the Standells' Dirty Water. Maybe someone's like, too much clean water here, Barbara Boxer. But other than that, it would not come up with Barbara Boxer. Debbie Stabenow, then governor of Michigan, was getting at something similar when she said, no one has ever come up to me and said, Debbie, please allow drug prices to continue to rise at 18 to 20 percent a year. Shelley Berkeley, representative of Nevada, said this on the House floor. No one has ever come up to me and said, Shelley, Congresswoman, I love being unemployed. Life on unemployment is such a picnic. But now what Shelley Berkeley was doing there was a little bit of a gambit. She was arguing a point upon which reasonable people actually can differ whether or not to extend welfare benefits. And she asserts that no one ever told her that they like being unemployed. Yet there certainly are people who, I won't say they like being unemployed, but they'd rather get a check not to work than to have to work. And I have yet to meet the economist who would assert otherwise. Speaking of economists unmet... I've yet to meet an economist that thinks that raising taxes during a deep recession is a good idea. I've yet to meet an economist that that thinks that inflating our way out of this by, by borrowing more money we don't have and literally printing dollars to solve that problem. This is a train wreck. Apparently, Matt Kibbe of FreedomWorks doesn't get out much. There are plenty of economists who favored Obama's raising of taxes. For instance, Paul Krugman. Maybe Kibbe never met the Nobel Prize winning economist, but if he reads the New York Times, he would have seen Krugman's frequent public calls for stimulus. Maybe that'll count as meeting him, maybe not. How about this guy, Robert Schiller, I think Schiller and Krugman might be the two most famous economists going, or at least the two most prominent economists who would definitely disagree with what Kibbe was saying. Here's a headline to a Schiller piece. The right way to do stimulus subhead, raising taxes would lead to more spending and more demand, really. Whatever happens, 
please, no one introduce Schiller to Kibbe at a cocktail party. So that's a whole other category. It's really just a linguistic dodge when you say, I've never met the person who said this, or no one's ever come up to me, or I've never heard anybody saying. Here, similar category, Anne Ravel, vice chair of the infamously partisan Federal Elections Commission. I, in my six months at the FEC, have never heard any partisan communications by either employees or commissioners. Which prompted Senator Pat Roberts to say, That must be one agency that's an island in the sun. Senatorial zing. So there are a lot of things that no one has ever come up to you and said. No one's ever told me they like, according to Jim. No one's ever said to me, I love drinking milk from the carton. No one's ever said to me, I consume massive quantities of gecko porn. It's not the sort of thing you say, even if it is the sort of thing you do. And the really interesting thing about the people you've never met or the things you've never heard or the phrases you assert that no one's ever said, you know what they are? They're testimonials to the speaker's own ignorance. But those phrases are usually employed to increase the listener's knowledge. It's this weird tactic of trying to win a point by showing how little you know or how little you've seen or how inexperienced you are. Or maybe the speaker is simply fibbing. I mean, I've never met any happily unemployed person who babbles on and on about partisanship, delightfully high drug prices, and clean water without reservation, but on a reservation. You know what? I'm just thinking maybe that person, maybe it's just one guy, and he's a hermit. He's an agoraphobe. He would be this myth-shattering, assumption-confounding contrarian, only he's turning down left and right social engagements with female politicians, NFL owners, and free market economists every day. I'd love to meet that guy, but I haven't met him yet. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist. If she's up to something beyond that, I don't know, and I don't want to know. I've yet to meet the man who can best Andy Bowers in a game of Mumbledy Peg while at the same time holding the title Executive Producer of Slate Podcasts. Good ways to listen to Slate's The Gist include SoundCloud and iTunes. How do you know when The Gist comes? Well, you can go to slate.com slash gist email. There you can sign up for our daily email. As soon as The Gist is out, you get that email, and then you know. But you can also go to Yo, download the app, subscribe to podcast, and we will Yo you as soon as The Gist is ready to go. Our Twitter feed is Slate Gist. You can email us at thegist at slate.com. No one has ever come up to me. I mean, I mean, it really engaged me on a deep level in a meaningful discussion about Grand Funk Railroad. If they do, I don't want to know about it. If I do know about it, I don't want to remember it. And if they do, tell me about it, remind me about it every day. Well, I just hope they say thanks for listening.